I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, I've got another complete interview for you. It's with one of the icons of Echoes and a pioneer in electronic music, Robert Rich. His album, Traveler's Cloth, was the June Echoes CD of the month and number one on the Best of Echoes 2023 so far, our mid-year list. Robert's music is a unique and surreal world, creating a sound for the long perspective. A lot of my approach to my art is looking at the long term, looking at deep time or deep future, and minimizing what our culture looks like to the entire flow of time, and looking at, at much, much longer processes. Robert Rich, I've got him in the podcast today. Before we get to that, I want to tell you about the Echo's Fun Drive to keep the chill out in the summer. We've taken on so many challenges in the past three years. You know, things like the pandemic, government funding cuts, stations going all news talk. But through it all, Echo's has moved forward, discovering new music, investigating the early pioneers and movements, and bringing you insightful interviews, and most important of all, maintaining the chill. The year ahead is going to be just as challenging, but we are committed to the music and the artists who create it, and we'll be striving to bring you the same level of excellence and more, because no matter what the challenges are, one thing is always true, Echoes will push the boundaries of our imaginations and yours, and Echoes will always bring on the chill. You are why we do what we do, and we need your help to raise $20,000. In the heat of this summer, Echoes may be the best chilled thing out there. Support us now with a donation to help us beat the heat. Go to echoes.org and hit the support tab to donate. That's echoes.org. Do it now as we head into this interview with Robert Rich, because who else is out there celebrating the pioneers of ambient music? So the new album is great. Thank you. And before I read anything about it, listening to it and seeing the titles, I was thinking a lot of it seemed to be about the ephemerality of life. Yep, that's a very good uh, summary, I would say. Also the ephemerality of comfort or the, uh, the realization that, uh, that nothing that we consider to be important really is that important. Okay. And and where did you get this concept from? Well, it's concepts I've been playing around with for most of my life. But I think a combination of reading translations of uh, Chinese poetry by David Hinton, which is um, in many parts an introduction f- from a friend of mine who we got to know each other as a as he was a listener of my music, uh, named Christian Arnsberger. He's a professor of uh, sustainability economics in Switzerland at Lausanne, and. Uh, he started sending me books <laughs> about four or five years ago mm-hmm. um, because he felt that there was a common language in some of my music and some of the ideas, for, for example, in What We Left Behind and that trilogy, which was more or less a trilogy about the end of humanity or, you know, the, the anti-humanist <laughs> trilogy. <laughs> and he felt some common language there. So I, um, I started reading these books, uh, David Hinton's uh, translations of Chinese poetry and also an amazing book uh, that he wrote called Existence, A Story, which is a, an entire book analyzing one painting from 17th century China. So the, the music started with these 
ideas in Taoism of the fabric of experience, the vibrating energy of creation that, that happens underneath of us and within our perceptions. And the, the beginning of the music, in fact, the opening piece, Riding on Water, really has more of a, of a Japanese, almost a gagaku theater kind of feeling to it. Uh, at least it starts out that way. But then I got sort of frozen or stuck and during that period, during 2021, uh, my wife and I started house hunting and, and deciding that we wanted to leave our home of 32 years. And uh, that was an interesting series of, of thoughts, because then this idea of what is home started haunting me or started... It's a question that I've often had, as I've felt always a sort of yearning for a kind of... Um, groundedness or a sort of root in, you know, a, a connection to earth. And I've not been much of a wanderer. In fact, I was living in the same area that I grew up in, and we lived in our house for 32 years. So I still wondered, why is it that I'm seeking home? What, why, what is home? And so since I had to tear up the studio and moved to a beautiful part of California on the coast... And then I did another album, so I put this album aside because I was sort of stuck on it. And then started reading another book of translations by Hinton, uh, which is the uh, Selected Poems of Tu Fu, who was a poet in the 8th century Tang Dynasty in China. So one of the great poems of, of history, in fact. And his story triggered a kind of epiphany for me where he was a person who had an ancestral home. In fact, he was royalty. Um, he was great-grandson to the founder of the Tang Dynasty. And yet, during the time he lived, it was a time of chaos and war and disease. And he fled his ancestral home and spent the rest of his life wandering through the river valleys of central and southern China, escaping war and escaping invasion and, and civil war as well. In 755, there was a massive uprising and and the Tang Dynasty was overthrown 12 years later, but it was bloodshed and he would have been destroyed, of course, because of his connection. So this idea of wandering and this idea of, of loss of everything, but yet becoming one of the, the great artists in the history of human civilization and his greatest Poetry happened during the time when he was the sickest and when he was unable to achieve anything in life, actually. So I think I am by nature distrustful of comfort. And we live in a time right now where my wife and I are actually quite comfortable. We're actually extremely happy where we moved. We live in what most people would consider luxury. And yet I have this niggling distrust of that. And I think that comes deeply from this sense of the constant change that happens around us and, and our mortality as well. And the idea of the shortness of life, but also good health. There is, I think, these recollections of how fragile comfort is and how we cannot trust the things of this world, really. Yeah, yeah, wow. Tufu, I mean, you talk about David Hinton, but the poetry is Tufu. That was the central inspiration, correct? Certainly, but also his life story. Um, mm -hmm. But what I loved about his poetry, and still love this, is that it could jump between very earthy and real, and even emotional and angry and political and social commentary, and yet always 
step back one step and observe the context and the eternal placement of those feelings and the how the story is actually much larger than our story. Yet he's not afraid to be in the story as well. And this is part of this idea of being in the world and not of it. You know, being being human and being aware and still having all of your emotions intact, and yet being observant and being able to look at yourself experiencing. Mm-hmm. So are all the titles drawn from his poetry? No, no, not really. No? They are drawn from... Some of them They're are. drawn from certain phrases that Hinton uses. So right. writing on water is a phrase from uh, Existence, a story. And Loom of Origins is a concept which I play around with a lot ever since my introduction, I guess, to Sufism 30 years ago, 40 years ago. This idea of the fabric of perception. But some of it is really just my own experience. I mean, uh, the title Feathers on a Barefoot Path is actually just something that I noticed at our home, at our new home in Carmel, <laughs> just because the birds follow me around. <laughs> I, I've always been f- fond of wildlife, and I, I keep peanuts in my pocket. And, and so the little birds have discovered that I'm a friend, and they, they follow me around the garden. <laughs> and so, so some of these are actually playing around. I mean, the list of titles can be read like a poem, but some of it's actually very personal. So in some ways, I think of our place, uh, we are in steep hills above Carmel, and it's often just above the fog. The, <laughs> the title Gaps in the Roof Show Sky was right when we moved here, we had to do a lot of work on the house, and we had to tear the roof off and replace it. And in the midst of that, we had some major storms in 2021. <laughs> and so the house was actually raining inside. <laughs> so Well, I'm almost disappointed that was your title, because I said, yeah, that had to come from some ancient Chinese poetry. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad that that some of the titles resonate in that way because I really try to have the titles tell a story. Sometimes I play a game of using the titles to, to create a poem. The, the, the album I did with Marcus Reuter, Lift a Feather to the Flood, if you read the titles, they create a poem, actually. So in that case, High Mountain Shelter, is that a reference to your new home as well? Perhaps, although in that case it is definitely referring to Du Fu's life because he spent time escaping from the wars in monasteries up high in the mountains of the Tianjin region, the place where those funny vertical karst formations are. But uh, yeah, so it's all, it's all just resonant. I think the idea of journeying, the idea of uh, the, all of the rhythms in the album have a sort of walking pace, and there is a sense of of a constant motion, although also a kind of stasis. The influence for me obviously goes often back to uh, North Indian uh, Hindustani classical music. And so that that sense of a drone and a rhythm and a melody are are the three fundamentals that make the movement forward. But for some people, it would always feel like it's a little bit static, but yet there's still motion. So it's a kind of combination of stasis and movement. So a lot of this album is acoustic. I mean... I'd say most of it is almost acoustic-based. You'd be surprised that it's really just um, the percussion and the flutes. Uh, that's about it that's acoustic. Okay. And the, and the lap steel I consider acoustic, okay. but, <laughs> but I, I, I get it. But for instance, the first song, Writing on Water, I mean, that one sounds like there's hardly any synth on that thing. Um, well, there's Hawk and Continuum, and there's uh, guitar, which is... Right, you know, but again, there's also, I mean, the, I mean, there's a fair amount of samples as well. The Prophet X works its way throughout the whole 
album pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the, the kind of drones are actually sequential synths and modular synths. Loom of Origins. Is that an all purely electronic track? No, no. Uh, the whole album is a hybrid of electronics and uh, flutes and percussion and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that track is using a modular synth, MOTM, layers of sequencers in a hocketing uh, 6-8 kind of pattern. And then flute and other instruments, percussion, things like that. There's a little bit of sort of some strange, almost uh, techno-ish percussion in the piece that follows it. it. There's a hybrid. The whole idea is to have an expressive emotional component with the played instruments with flute or the guitar and have that element of a voice or a breath, which, you know, the thing I like about flute is that you can't make the sound go forever. It, the sound is so connected to your breath that it has a direct connection to your emotional state and to the way you're breathing and to your body. So there's an, an innate, almost unconscious, uh, emotive connection there between the, the body and the music. And then the electronics augment this emotive level with, with a sort of structural level and an underpinning of, of uh, possibly, you know, surrealism or an attempt to, to create a sense of otherness or pure sound design where you can create a landscape of larger proportion than just acoustic instruments can create. Hmm. Well, it's funny you mentioned the next track because Loom and Feathers on a Barefoot Path, they both took me back to propagation hmm. a bit. Different tempo, definitely. I would say that what's similar is that they're all celebrating life and the organic aspect of life. Uh, so the hybrid of the electronics and the acoustics is is attempting to show how we as a modern culture can move forward with uh, serving our own ecology, our own physicality, our own bodies, and respecting the, the physicality of, of life around us while not turning away from technology and not actually, uh, you know, becoming sort of Luddite. Uh, and so th- there is a landscape feature also. Propagation is dealing with ideas of landscape, ideas of life. And uh, this is also dealing with, with a sort of envisioning of, of movement through landscape. You know, Feathers, there's this beautiful synth melody on it, which kind of sounded like a Lyricon, hmm. although I suspect it was the It's Hacken. a Hawken continuum, yes. Yeah, but it sounded like a Lyricon. Yeah, there's a voice... Which is, which is something I haven't even thought of in years, actually, because no one plays that Right. Anymore. It's one particular patch on the continuum which jumps into an interesting overtone. And so the longer you sustain the sound, especially if you have a little bit of motion in your finger without lifting the finger up, it starts jumping into sort of an equivalent of an overblown flute or a guitar feedback harmonic. And it resembles a lot uh, when I'm using Ebo on the steel guitar when the ebo jumps into an overtone on the ebo there's a switch that can change the overtone from an octave to an octave and a fifth to a third harmonic and in this case this patch jumps to the third harmonic which is interesting because when you're playing in that upper harmonic suddenly your mode changes and you have to shift everything by a fifth you can hit some wrong notes because you're suddenly off in a different key but uh, I love that patch because I can put it through guitar pedals and actually play it just like I would uh, the ebo and and so it has a real uh, elegant kind of life to it hmm. your melodies robert i'm trying to think if they're actually melodies per se do you know what i mean they're, they're not melodies like 
in a pop tune, for instance. They're kind of free-floating, and they actually sound improvised. There's a lot of improvisation. Everything I've done my whole life is is uh, based upon improvisation, but with an idea that I guess I take from uh, Hindustani uh, classical music, North Indian classical music, where there's rules about how the melodies are going to be played in this piece or that piece, uh, different modes, different uh, language of transforming between notes. But then note for note, moment for moment, it's going to be different each time I do it. And that's how I perform as well. So there's, I'll, I'll grab this particular flute for this particular piece and then play it in a certain approach, but it'll be different each time. And another aspect to this, which is maybe different from Western pop music or something, or even Western classical, is that I tend not to use repetition quite as much. I, I try not to do this sort of loop back to, a, you know, verse chorus structure, or now we're going to repeat the, you know, the theme, like in classical music, you'll have these themes and variations. My approach is definitely with a melodic theme or with what Lou Harrison would call a melodical, which is a, a sort of, you know, sets of melodic fragments or statements. But then moving forwards, like we would be in a conversation. And so, like a conversation, you don't end up at the end in the same place you were in the beginning. You you come to a rapport with the other person. You have a relationship, and these ideas, they evolve. And so, in the beginning of the piece, you're in one state, and in the end of the piece, you're in a different place, even though the, the piece might have a certain sameness. Your conversation might be at a coffee shop over a cup of coffee and a bagel, but you're going to have a, a transition in the ideas as you as you progress. So when is your AI album coming out? <laughs> it's funny. There's some filmmakers coming from uh, Bulgaria in a few days to do a film about AI and music. And you know that the cover art on this new album on Traveler's Cloth is augmented with AI. Uh, it's the same artist that I've used for years, John Bergen. And we decided to experiment with this idea because I had some very specific places that I wanted the artwork to evoke, in this case, central China and the, you know, the mountains of Xiangjiang. And the uh, ability for him to use expert systems and graphic language to he, what he's been doing is training mid journey to look like his art. So he's been showing mid journey, his brush strokes, he's been showing it the difference between a matte and a shiny finish. And John's day job, essentially, is he does illustrated books, uh, comics, and some of his are harrowingly dark. Um, you know, in fact, the the look of the movie The Crow was partially designed by his art book of The Crow. You know, the, the, the feel of that movie was his feel. And so as he's been teaching Midjourney to look like him, we could actually have this dialogue about where I wanted the artwork to take people to this idea of being in a Buddhist monastery high up in the mountains, but yet this idea of ancient history and sort of a crumbling uh, history, a sort of the sense of, of nothing is quite the same anymore in this sense of oldness. And so he was able to throw 20 or 30 different images at me and say, what do you think of these? And I say, wow, I like this element. I like that element. And then he would bring his skills in Photoshop to edit these approaches together. And so instead of just relying on AI to, to generate images from scratch, he's actually training it and teaching it. I would say, first of all, that AI is becoming a too facile term. I, 
I'm old friends with Jaron Lanier, and he wrote an essay last month in The New Yorker, and it's called There Is No AI. And his point is that we are mythologizing AI. We're turning it into something that it isn't. And that to respect the technology as a tool, we need to appreciate that it's just an expert system. It's just a big database and a bunch of code that combines data. And so my feeling is that like any other tool, like Photoshop or like Pro Tools, a workstation, we can become victims of it and we can lose our humanity like a lot of pop music using way too much auto-tune or something, turning everything into a sameness. Or we can use it as tools to empower us and to serve humanity and to create art that is actually uh, more fluid and flexible. But first of all, we have to master the tools and we have to make sure that the tools are serving our purposes and are serving human culture instead of us serving the tools. What an optimistic point of view. I'm not entirely optimistic. I think you know me well enough. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually (laughs) virtually an inhumanist, I would say, in that I think that I value nature and and the resilience of of our environment and our planet more than I do late-era capitalism or whatever we've created right now. Um, So no, I'm not optimistic at all, but my feeling is that if we don't move the tools into the direction of empowerment, then we're just becoming victims. Well, you know, that that kind of brings me to another question I was going to ask you. I've been involved with a couple of things lately for the show that definitely deal with music coming out of a certain culture. We just did a piece on this guy, John Robb, who wrote a book called The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth. <laughs> okay, so it's all about the goth music of the of the early early 1980s late late 70s i have a long fondness for heavy dark music i i, mean, <laughs> I, I figured you would you, know, you should check out our, our the feature we did on which is it's up in the podcast and uh the book is quite a tome it's like 500 and something pages but it was interesting how that music came out of a certain culture you know in england it was post post-punk i guess it was punk post-punk than goth and you know and how how that music was reflecting not just not just the music culture but you know the the culture in england at the time which was kind of dismal the thatcher (laughs) years and everything and then i was just talking to uh bt yesterday you know you know you know he is right and he's so involved with the whole edm dance culture movement as well as the technological movement Ha. I come from, yeah, sure. I would say that that if there's a culture, it would be one of uh, psychophysiology and uh, states of consciousness. But that's not a culture. That is a study. Sure. But uh, I guess the culture I came from was Bay Area post, uh, sort of the culture that, that grew up around the hippie, but the the academic and intellectual side of that. So that perhaps the um, the culture that, that Ken Kesey left behind, but then formed companies like Apple Computer, where there was a sense of using technology to empower the counterculture. And a lot of the friends that I made in high school and in college and later were people who were early founders of counterculture technology, I would say. Um, in fact, 
my wife and I met each other at Jaron Lanier's 28th birthday party, and we both were good friends with Dan Kotke, who was the first employee at Apple and who was the person who went to India with Steve Jobs. Um, and so, you know, that was the culture I grew up in, which is Bay Area counterculture post-60s technology. And I just left Silicon Valley two years ago because it was getting so toxic to me, this transition from a kind of optimistic empowerment of technology for the individual and against systems of government or of, of power structures or war, you know, basically a pacifistic culture that I grew up in. Uh, you know, I remember in the late 60s in Menlo Park, living right next to Stanford campus, uh, my dad would come home from work in the aerospace industry and want to watch the Vietnam War on television. And, you know, that afternoon, I might have ridden my bike over to Lake Lagunita and watched the naked hippies hanging out. And it was much, you know, when you took a choice between napalm and a naked hippie, I would pick the naked hippie any day as a five-year-old in 1968, you know, I mean, there was a, a very clear choice between the kinds of systems that power created and the kinds of systems that could come from empowering the, the, the disempowered, perhaps. So I would say that that's my philosophical culture and this culture of technological optimism. But yet, as I became more a student of ecology and looking at how systems work in a larger network of environment, I started seeing how human, modern, Western technological and capitalist culture is turning our mother into a commodity, basically, to use a little, you know, hippie term, that essentially we're, we're, we're chopping our limbs off and eating them and commodifying what sustains us and turning it into, a, you know, something to sell and destroy. And so my underpinning definitely is driven by a hope that I can divert or help be a voice to divert our headlong direction off a cliff. I've created albums like What We Left Behind, which is essentially an optimistic view of what the world will be like after we're extinct, and pretty certain that our culture will be extinct, if not the human future, in, in a short time. Every culture becomes extinct. And so a lot of my approach to my art is looking at the long term, looking at deep time or deep future, and minimizing what our culture looks like to the entire flow of time and looking at, at much, much longer processes. And some of my darkest music is actually some of my most spiritual, like Below Zero, for example. That album is looking into cosmology and looking into deep future and deep past and putting our own problems into such a tiny little perspective of, of how insignificant they are that everything just becomes sort of much more beautiful to me. And my album Filaments, I think, is also dealing with a lot of those cosmological questions. Well, that's interesting, because, of course, your music has no lyrics. I did I did Amoeba albums, so, too. <laughs> <laughs> your music has no lyrics. <laughs> so <laughs> do you expect people to, to glean these ideas from your music? Well, it's an interesting story, you know, because music doesn't even have an existence. Music is non-physical, right? As soon as you turn off the speakers or turn off or stop playing the instrument, it goes away. It's just vibrations in space. And like any of the time-based arts, it only exists while you experience it. 
and the the transition that it creates in your mind where it leaves you after the experience is the only thing that it leaves it's it's the only perfume in the room it's not an object that you can look at and put on your table so what's interesting is that our culture of distributing music actually puts it onto an object we create these things now those things have gone away now since streaming has taken over but i still like to create a context around each album so that it tells a story and so even though music is evanescent, music is non-physical, I still get a lot of pleasure out of creating a physical thing. It doesn't have to be there. But the story that the package tells becomes part of that environment that can help to um, enrich the experience of something that's otherwise quite rarefied. Of course, in our digital age, we don't have a package. No, if you're just putting it on random stream through a, a, a streaming service, then a 10-minute piece of mind might dovetail into a three-minute rap song or something, and there's going to be no context, no uh, flow. The thing is that now everything's driven by playlists and driven by this concept of influencers and all this stuff. I have very little patience for this. I'm still a little old-fashioned in that I try to tell a story that's a consistent self-contained, uh, you know, like a book or like, like a, a, an actual story. And the context, the artwork still matters to me. And I don't think I asked you this last time. On Gaps in the Roof Show Sky, what is that twangy instrument <laughs> on there? Is that just the lap steel? or no, is it? it's an acoustic. It's a Weissenborn guitar, basically a Hawaiian acoustic guitar. It's a fretless, six-string, um, lap-played acoustic instrument. Oh, okay. And I'm, okay. I'm sort of playing it like Indian music. I've got it in an open tuning um, and essentially making up a, a sort of improvised raga, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, though, because um, the symbols on that piece reminded me of a style of music that I never associate with you. But I started thinking about jazz. I grew up with jazz. And, and those ECM albums that you're probably thinking of, that sound of, of you know... Uh, John Christensen and some of those things, you know, those open, beautifully recorded jazz albums from the 70s, which I think we all appreciate. I've seen your record collection. <laughs> um, and, you know, my dad played jazz guitar and was part of like the 50s cool school. He was very fond of Stan Getz and Barney Kessel. And uh, he actually played on a couple Peanuts soundtracks with uh, Vince Guaraldi. He was actually going to play with Vince Guaraldi on the day that he died in 1976. At a, at a little bar in Redwood City called the Red Cottage. Garaldi had a once-a-month kind of session where he would invite friends to come sit in, but he didn't wake up that day. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I always had jazz in the back of my, my mind as a language. I don't think in terms of jazz transpositions or these kinds of clustered chords. I can't actually do it. My head doesn't go there. It's, it's a very specific language that I lack. But you can hear it in the way that my modal language bends a lot. I think I'm probably more influenced by McCoy Tyner and that sort of uh, modal jazz sound of stacked fourths and fifths and things like that. The, uh, the idea where it's modal, you've got a key center and you've got a sort of implied drone, but I'm not ruled by the mode like Indian music might be. I'm happy to go into a sort of chromatic language, bending the mode into a more of a microtonal or a 12-tone space. But there's still definitely a language of modality. There's still a sense of a key that's, that's always hovering. But I'm not locked into it. And so there's a certain jazz language into the way I use modal music. 
Interesting. Interesting. I didn't expect that to go there. Footprints in the rain. It's got those environmental sounds on it. What, what are they? Well, we just moved to Carmel and I had a surround microphone and the album work that I was doing for this album started all in surround, actually. It, uh, it was picking up the sound of wind in the trees and rain and birds and children playing in the distance. And so those things became the underpinning for the timeline. There's several ways to start an album. One is track by track. But some of my best work, I've realized, looking back on it, that I create a timeline that's like one hour long, and I just start filling the timeline in with environmental sounds. And then it creates a, a canvas that I need to fill. You know, it's a little bit like some painters that you want to start with a dirty canvas. You might, you might stain the canvas or you might throw it on the ground to get some mark on it before you start, because starting with an empty canvas is really freezing. You know, it can be really difficult. So sometimes you, you, you just throw something at it and then you have something to begin with. And I'll do that with music sometimes. This album structured from the beginning with this idea that I would have a timeline, except instead of doing a full 60-minute 70-minute timeline, like on an album like Nest or Offering to the Morning Fog, for example. Those are just one flow. The whole album is, is, is an hour-long timeline. In this case, I split it up into three 20-minute timelines. And so each of the 20 minutes has a beginning, middle, and end. And so you can hear a sort of three-part chapter structure in the album. And then each of those three parts has three sections. And so the whole album from the very beginning, I laid out a set of structure. It was going to be nine tracks, in three sections. And this is kind of like a novel. I was telling a story or like a film. You have, you know, a beginning, middle and end, kind of a denouement at the end. And so the the, the landscape recordings were, were set in there and then filling in the gaps. Hmm, interesting. So of course you, you kind of lose that concept because as a CD, which you had, just have is, is continuous. You need to do this as a vinyl three-sided double album. Well, the, the CD continuum is exactly what was the intended listening experience. And so sure, the, sure, but you don't... The chapter breaks are... They're intended to flow together, and I worked out the key structure. In fact, one of the pieces, the short piece that's um, Shadow Mist Beneath, which is right before the last section of three tracks, has some unusual key changes in it. And this is what I like, is that when you force yourself into a corner, I had two modes that I had to justify and, and fit together. And so I found some key changes that brought one mode into the other one seamlessly so that the next transition was in the same feeling and mood. And that is intended to be seamless. So the whole thing, these three chapters, are then glued together with planning about what key everything is in. And the changing keys have common tones, and those common tones transition into the next track, and so it doesn't feel like a shock. So last year you put out an album that I think will stand out in the Robert Rich discography as being somewhat anomalous, which is For Sundays When It Rains. With Luca Formentini, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think a very sweet album. Uh, there's something I love about working with Italian friends. There's a sweetness and a gentleness. And Luca is is a wonderful friend. He's also a great winemaker. He's a winemaker at Lin, uh, the region of Lake Garda, just south of the Alps in northern Italy. And uh, he took over his family's winery, and uh, he makes wonderful white wines. He reached out to me about eight years ago or so, and the way he reached out to me was by sending me a case of wine from Italy. 
<laughs> and uh, what, a, what a great way to make a friend. Uh, so he started coming to visit when he was working uh, to promote his wines. So when he was out here last winter touring his wines in February, uh, we set aside three days very intensely working. We had already shared files back and forth for the previous month or two and had a direction. And we were discussing this kind of mood that we were creating together. And for me, intuitively, it's, it's, it's this Sunday afternoon mood, a very gentle, quiet, fireplace kind of mood. And there's an intimacy there, a, a sort of melancholy, but a, a beautiful, soft, gentle melancholy. And it just came out of us, I think. It definitely sounds different for you, Robert. It doesn't have the edge. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, not everything. Maybe I'm just getting old and soft. <laughs> well, it's amazing, the sonic tapestry of this album, Robert. It's just so deep in terms of um, just all the timbres and all the environments that, that you're creating for this music. I'm thinking like a shadow mist beneath. You've got this... What are those water sounds? It's like water mm. percussion. Sounds like you're in the bowels of a ship. <laughs> it would, might destroy the, 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 the fantasy if I say. So we had some serious weather this winter. Um, in fact, our road was, was blocked off. The four neighbors at the end of our street were trapped with fallen trees two different weeks in February. And in December, there were some serious rains and the whole hillside was sort of weeping water like a spring. We're, we're, we're actually kind of perched on the top of a, of a winter spring. And the and I was noticing this percussive sound in the downspouts during the rain as, as the water was sort of plunking on a certain part of metal and it was sounding rhythmic like percussion. And so I was recording these downspout noises and trying to create a sense of intrinsic rhythm from that random bonking of, of metal sounds. That's actually pretty it's good. It's not too. the bells of a ship, it's just the bells of a storm. <laughs> yeah, but but you throw the reverb on it and suddenly it's you also know. it's also half and quarter speed, right? so that helps. Um. No, nothing is what it seems on my albums. You know, I use a lot of <laughs> I, I use a lot of manipulation. No. The master <laughs> mess the master of surrealist sound for sure, Thank Robert. You. I take that as a great compliment. Right. <laughs> I would think you would. <laughs> You're a fan of surrealism. I remember you were always, you were always offended that Yves Tanguy said that music couldn't be surreal. Oh, no, it was actually Yves Tanguy is a hero. It was, it was uh, André Breton. Um, ah, Bre Breton sorry. famously had a tin ear. I mean, he hated music. And uh, I think he disliked, well, he said something to the effect of, and this is a paraphrase, but to, to the effect of, um, music can never have a surrealist idea because music is by its nature abstract and by its reality concrete, whereas surrealism is by its nature concrete and in its reality abstract. So <laughs> so he was basically denying the possibility that music could be an art form that dealt with dreams or dealt with the unreal or with the nonlinear. And at the same time, the Italian futurists uh, were creating this strange noise music, and he was very suspicious of it because he suspected of them being fascists. Because, of course, Italy in the 1920s has been taken over by Mussolini, and the futurists were trying to find an alternate voice for a kind of radical you know, expression. Um, if they were 
claiming to be communists like the Dadaists did, they would have been killed. So, of course, Breton suspected them of being crypto-fascists. And yet the uh, Italian futurists, like I believe Russolo was one of the composers who would use sirens and, and strange noise-making devices, um, you know, he, he denied it as being a non-surrealist potential. It had no possibility. You know, and he lived into the 50s and 60s, Breton did, but, but if he had seen what had happened with music concrete and with the beginnings of electronic music, I, I think he, he should have been able to change his mind on that. And so my feeling was with the album uh, Bestiary, that if I could express the kind of feelings that Yves Tanguy did in a painting, but with sound, uh, kind of create a sound of an alternate uh, universe or of a different species, you know, m- music for another planet, that, that it would be thumbing my nose at André Breton, basically. <laughs> All right, Robert. Um... I'm, I'm grateful for, you've been very kind in your language and, you know, very... Very generous. I will have a link to Robert Rich's Traveler's Cloth in the posting for this podcast at echoes.org. I'll also have a link to my review of the album, which was the June CD of the month. While you're there, check out the Echoes CD of the Month Club and get great albums like this every single month. Go to echoes.org. It also helps to support Echoes, and it's another way you can donate during our summer fun drive. On the Thursday Echoes podcast, we're going to have Sus, the ambient country band who are definitely more ambient these days. They talk about loss and rebirth and where the twang went. I'm John DiLiberto. Don't forget to donate to Echoes now. Make a meaningful contribution to something that I hope and try to make meaningful in your life. Go to echoes.org and hit the support tab at the top. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S, dot org, O-R-G. This has been the Echoes Podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want.